you uh, have been becoming so familiar with this group that you need no introduction. But uh, welcome once again from uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and uh, thank you for coming tonight. Thank you so much, Patrick. Um, you know, this is such a precious experience for me um, because it's my sangha, you know, my original sangha. And because of the kind of engagement and intimacy that's happening here, sometimes at Upaya, there's like 150 nameless beings out there who I love and appreciate and have no idea <laughs> about. Um, and this is different. And, and it's really such a pleasure. And I'm very grateful to you for showing up and um, to Jean for inviting me to be part of this. May it continue through the years as long as my kind of aging self will, <laughs> will permit. So thanks very much. And um, there, I have a title for this talk, which is Vimala Kirti's Great Compassion. But also, um, we're going to go a little bit afield um, so that we can uh, really try to find our way into some of these big questions that at least come up for me with this. Um, so I'm going to talk about a few small topics like wisdom and compassion, love, and wise hope, enacted hope, um, compassionate action grounded in just the world as it is, loving that and not turning away from that, and then how all these things move in us. And um, then of course, the Vimala Kirti's teachings on compassion. So um, I want to stop. I'm going to start with a love poem because I love starting with poetry. And I'm hoping I haven't shared this one. I have my kind of beloved go-to poems, I have to say. And this is one of them. Um, and I don't know if I've shared it with you before. But if I have, I could share it 10 times more. <laughs> and we would enjoy it, I think. So this is a poem called Aimless Love. And it's Billy Collins. This morning as I walked along the lake shore, I fell in love with a wren. And later in the day with a mouse. The cat had dropped under the dining room table. In the shadows of an autumn evening, I fell for a seamstress still at her machine in the tailor's window. And later for a bowl of broth steam rising like smoke from a naval battle. This is the best kind of love, I thought, without recompense, without gifts, or unkind words, without suspicion or silence on the telephone. The love of the chestnut, the jazz cap and one hand on the wheel, no lust, no slam of the door, the love of the miniature orange tree, the clean white shirt, 
the hot evening shower. The highway that cuts across Florida. No waiting, no huffiness, no rancor. Just a twinge every now and then for the wren who had built her nest on a low branch overhanging the water. For the dead mouse still dressed in its light brown suit. But my heart is always propped up in a field on its tripod, waiting for the next arrow. After I carried the mouse by the tail to a pile of leaves in the woods, I found myself standing at the bathroom sink, gazing down affectionately at the soap. So patient and soluble. So at home in its pale green soap dish, I could feel myself falling again as I felt it turning in my wet hands and caught the scent of lavender and stone. So why start with love and Billy Collins is for me, um, for one thing, not starting from the head and what we're going to figure out about wisdom and compassion, but starting from the heart and, and from our love of the world. So um, we'll go to Vimalakirti's Great Compassion, which is a view when I studied this a year or so ago that really turned for me. And I'll talk about that a little bit. But I want to give a one minute kind of uh, remembering short review of the arc of the sutra from the introductory talk. So we begin in this huge arena of thousands of bodhisattvas in this great gardens with jeweled uh, umbrellas and Brahma kings and dragons. And in this great arena um, and this kind of epic story. Our hero is a lay person, Vimalakirti, who's Ill, Ill in his bed. And we have this whole introduction of all the bodhisattvas and disciples um, refusing to visit Vimalakirti because one time when I met him here, this happened and he, you know, his teachings were so deep and I was a fool. <laughs> so there's all these teachings about not wanting to go. And then finally, Manjushri um, agrees to visit Vimalakirti and inquire about his illness. And Manjushri um, asks, how can you endure this illness? And what's its cause? And how can it be cured? And Vimalakirti says, this illness of mine is born of ignorance and feelings of attachment. Because all living beings are sick, therefore I'm sick. And so the illness of the bodhisattva arises from her great compassion. And, you know, the bodhisattva ideal to stay in the world um, for the love of beings. And that when beings are no longer sick, the bodhisattva will no longer be sick. So this is this, you know, large arena of the story. And Vimalakirti asks what's meant by the source of the illness. And um, he answers for himself, troublesome entanglements. 
I think we know them very well. <laughs> Troublesome entanglements. And then how does one cut them off? By realizing there's no, nothing to grasp. So this is, you know, just grounding us in these basic teachings. And then what is meant by realizing there's nothing to grasp? It means having done with dualistic views, with viewing this is internal, this is me over here, viewing that as external, that's you over there. And um, kind of reviewing these words, I wanted to bring in something from trust in mind that I know you all know because you've chanted, um, I don't know, probably every week. Now, this is a line a little longer in trust in mind that we don't chant at Santa Cruz, but Sankan says one thing, all things move among and intermingle without distinction. To live in this realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. And this without anxiety about non-perfection to me holds a lot. Uh, loving the world as it is, nothing to fix, just to engage. Um, and then Senkan says to live in this faith is the road to non-duality because the non-dual is one with the trusting mind. So this basic container of the illness of the Bodhisattva arising from her great compassion. Um, one of the things that's unpacked in a very interesting way here is is what is compassion and a year or so ago when i studied this i just learned to uncouple somehow it helped me uncouple compassion as a feeling and that's how you know i'm used to thinking we feel compassion but vimalakirti teaches it otherwise. He says this, if a bodhisattva's compassion is marked by affection and concern, and in the Thurman translation, this is sentimental compassion, which is kind of helpful to me because of course, affection and concern, I'm all in, right? <laughs> um, sentimental compassion, so if a bodhisattva's compassion is marked by affection and concern, then he will have feelings of weariness and revulsion toward the realm of birth and death. And now for us, this weariness and revulsion is our burnout, our overwhelm, our disappointment, discouragement in everything, the politics, the climate, the, the way we treat each other, this despair we feel at the state of the world. And it can be very immobilizing. Okay, so Vimalakirti says, if he can put aside affection and concern, he will have no feelings of weariness and revulsion. Whatever realm he happens to be born into, he will not be blinded and I really like this word, blinded by affection and concern. Because I'm not interested, willing to give up concern for beings, concern for the world, concern, um, love for the world, 
you know, I think this is precisely why we practice because of our love and concern for beings. Our vow to quote unquote save beings come from this. So I think it's important to examine these, you know, questions and not just kind of gloss over. How do we enact our love? And then how are we blinded by affection and concern? What really is being asked of us when we talk about non-attachment to outcomes? If my child is sick, I want her to get well, right? So where, how can we un understand and embody this non-attachment to outcomes in a way that it frees us and empowers us? And um, how do we wisely engage from love and compassion and not attachment? Um, so sentimental compassion has some problems. For one thing, it brings attachment to outcomes. Also, um, It casts us in these roles of, you know, sentimental compassion. We're the ones giving compassion to the poor ones who need it. You know, so there's this separation and dualistic view. And then all of our complications and emotional entanglements. So one way I want to begin to kind of reframe or look and unpack this. I want to bring a quote from Rachel Naomi Remen, who it's a very famous quote. I think many of you had heard it, have, will have heard it, but I think here it's very helpful. Um, she says, helping, fixing, and serving represent three different ways of seeing life. When you help, you see life as weak. When you fix, you see life as broken. When you serve, you see life as whole. So seeing life as whole is including everything, seeing that nothing's out of place, and also that we're not apart from that whole. So before we loop back into Vimalakirti, I want to reference the work of Joanna Macy here because I find it really helpful in reconciling and enacting a compassion and, and view of no self or no beings to be saved because, you know, the whole no beings, to, it gets very confusing and intellectual to me. And I feel that... Uh, the teachings of Joanna Macy helped me in to understanding that. And it also helps me to keep grounded in compassion as an active hope. So first, um, there's a quote that's actually in one of her writings, but from Llewellyn Von Lee about um, basically a non-dual view. Then here's the quote. The world is not a problem to be solved. 
It's a living being to which we belong. Non-separation, a living being to which we belong. The world is part of our own self and we are part of its suffering wholeness. Until we go to the root of our image of separateness, there can be no healing. And the deepest part of our separateness from creation lies in our forgetfulness of its sacred nature, which is also our own sacred nature. The view of non-separation or no separate self, seeing life as whole and us as part of the whole. I think of the jewel mirror, you know, song of the jewel mirror awareness. You are not it, in fact. It is you. Joanna Macy says, to be alive in this beautiful self-organizing universe, to participate in the dance of life with senses to perceive it, lungs that breathe it, organs that draw nourishment from it, is a wonder beyond words. So we have our teachings of non-attachment and then you know we have this beautiful participation um, and love of the world as not being separate from us and for me it's uplifting to keep this wonder and intimacy and love in the love of the world you know front and center and it's very easy for it not to be there you know but to act from this. So coming from emptiness is not coming from detachment. It's coming from equanimous love and non-separation. And the not being blinded, part of not being blinded is not being blinded by for and against, like and don't like, approve and don't approve. Not being blinded by that. So to go back to the this idea of compassion not being a feeling, if it's not a feeling, and if compassionate action can be actually rendered less skillful um, when it's accompanied by what Vimala Kirti calls affection and concern, then what is compassion? What's the view that leads us to act? from compassion and generosity. And um, in the sutra, and as emphasized by in Joan Sutherland's um, commentary, the emphasis is on what we do, not how we feel. There's some beautiful, I think this, yeah, this is somewhere in Joan Sutherland, this, uh, there's a quote, from Eleanor Roosevelt that says, what is it? Like something about great at many, most great acts being done on, by people who were not particularly having a good day. <laughs> That's very um, uplifting to me. So the emphasis is on what we do and not how we feel. A sentimental view or, you know, a view bound with this anxious concern for outcomes cre does create a, what 
Vimalakirti calls a weariness and aversion to the world. Like, I think it's what we know as burnout. And compassion balanced with wisdom or emptiness view calls us to put down our disappointment, fears, judgments, and to love life just as it, is, just as it arises for us. Um, Joan Sutherland says, it's tough to be helpful when our energy is bound up in a fight with life for being life. Such a good understanding. And it is, you know, mine, I spend a lot of time like this shouldn't be happening. This is not what I want. A fight for life being life rather than some more settling into um, what's arising and how we can meet it. So you don't have to feel empathy or even understand in order to be compassionate. How you act doesn't have to be directly connected to how you feel about the situation. That comes through in my life with a lot of my kids. It's like how I feel about the situation and what's skillful to say and the way it's skillful to interact are not um, the same thing. So, you know, we have our feelings and there's a very clear, beautiful way that I like, appreciate um, that Joan Sutherland puts it. She says, not privileging our feeling states above everything else. Instead, just to take up our vow and walk in that direction. Am I discouraged? Keep going. Am I pissed off? Keep going. It's like this longer, more spacious view that I think is um, what's talked about uh, by Joanna Macy and many others these days about um, wise hope or enacted hope. We just keep going. So for this compassion to be enacted, we need insight, this balance into the dependent co-oblizing of things. Let's us see that it's not a battle between good people and bad people. It's not. Because good and evil or good and bad um, runs through all of our hearts and lives. And we realize that we're interconnected in this web and that each act from our vow, our purest motivation, even if we fall on our face, affects the entire web and brings consequences that we have no idea, no way to measure. We just trust. So I'm going to bring in a story that... Um, Mary Knudsen reminded me of recently that I had talked about in a Dharma talk a few years ago. It's such a beautiful story. And it's, to me, um, you know how stories are. It, it's a beautiful way to see um, this kind of compassion that's uh, it's not jerked around, 
It's very human. And this is a story that I call the Stonecatcher story. And it's a story from a book called Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. And he's a very uh, beloved, well-known lawyer who fights for the rights of people on death row, particularly young people who have been sentenced to de death row and um, has dedicated himself to helping the poor, the incarcerated. But the story I'm going to tell share with you is not about him. It's a story of a woman, and I love this, it's a woman whose name is left unsaid, <laughs> as seems to be our way. <laughs> um, and it's not a Zen story, but it's a Bodhisattva story. And I'm, I have to read just a little bit, and only because I'll tell most of the story, but I want to read a paragraph so you can hear her voice. So here it goes. So the setting is that um, Brian Stevenson had just won a huge, really important trial and freedom for someone who had been incarcerated for 50 years since this person was a teenager. And he comes out to the courtroom steps and he's had this victory and he's exhausted and there's all this energy going on and there's a older black woman sitting on the steps. An older black woman sat on the marble steps in the massive courthouse hallway. She looked tired and wore my, my, what my sister and I used to call a church meeting hat. I can picture that. I don't know if you can, maybe it's my age. Um, but she wore a church meeting hat and she had smooth, dark skin. And I recognized her as someone who had been in the courtroom when Mr. Carter was resentenced. In fact, I thought I'd seen her each time I'd come to the courthouse in New Orleans. I assumed that she was related or connected to one of the clients, although I didn't remember the other family members ever mentioning her. I must have been staring at her because she saw me looking and waved at me gesturing for me to come to her. When I walked over to her, she smiled at me. I'm tired and I'm not gonna get up. So you're going to have to lean over for me to give you a hug. She had a sweet voice that crackled. I smiled back at her. Well, yes, ma'am, I love hugs, thank you. She wrapped her arms around my neck. Sit, sit, I wanna talk to you, she said. I sat down beside her on the steps. I've seen you here several times. Are you related to Ms. Mr. Caston or Mr. Carter? I asked. No, no, no. I'm not related to nobody here. Not that I know of anyway. She had a kind smile and she looked at me intensely. I just come here to help people. This is a place full of pain. So people need plenty of help around here. Well, that's really kind of you. No, that's what I'm supposed to do. So I do it. She looked away before locking eyes with me again. My 16-year-old grandson was murdered 15 years ago. 15 years ago, she said. And I loved that boy more than life itself. 
So her story was that she had this grandson that had been murdered and she kept, you know, she came to the trials and she just cried and cried. And then she came to the trial when her son's killers were sentenced and cried some more and grieved. Um, and then there's this unfolding of what she did next. And, you know, first she just opened her heart to her own suffering and grief. And this is not turning away. Her beloved grandson was gunned down and she said, I grieved and grieved and grieved. She came to the courthouse and cried every day. And then she let that love that needed somewhere to go. You know, Frank Astaseski says, Grief is just love with nowhere to go. So she took that love and um, let it connect her to others. She said she thought that a guilty verdict, which there was this guilty verdict for her grandson who had been gunned down, would make her feel better. And she said, actually, it made me feel worse. She connected to the suffering of all those suffering from the systemic violence systemic racism, and she just connected to them as human beings. After her grandson's killer was sentenced, she was, so this is another little scene in this story. She was inconsolably crying in the courthouse steps. And another woman, who's also unnamed, just came to her and comforted her, just coming alongside maybe sat with her for a couple of hours. And then our stone catcher Bodhisattva began showing up at the courthouse, just not knowing and bearing witness, just showing up. She said, I didn't know what to do with myself after those trials. So about a year later, I just started coming down here. I don't really know why. I guess I felt like maybe I could be someone, you know, that somebody hurting could lean on. And when I think of this, what comes to mind is giving the gift of fearlessness to those who leaned on her, but also to everyone who hears this story. It's a teaching story. And you know, at first, she says in this the account, she thought she was coming down to comfort ones like her, whose whose loved ones um, had had been killed and were kind of in our eyes receiving justice, right? But what she found was no, just suffering. That there was as much suffering from those whose children and loved ones were sentenced. There was just suffering. And she just came to be there and be someone that others could lean on. So, you know, what about us? What are our ingredients? And also, you know, I think what stops us like for myself? What always looking at when I turn away 
And what is it? What's there? What stops me when that happens? In uh, Shishobo, Dogen says, foolish people think that if they help others first, their own benefit will be lost. But this is not so. Beneficial action is an act of oneness, benefiting self and others together, which kind of circles us back to this non-dual, non-separation um, wing of wisdom and compassion. And we can see in this story, this stone-catching story, that the woman, our woman Bodhisattva, deeply benefited, healed from her action. Maybe, you know, you could say she got her life back by showing up in the way that she did. She said, those judges throwing people away like they're not even human people shouting each other like they don't care. I don't know, it's a lot of pain. I decided that I was supposed to be here to catch some of the stones people cast at each other from whichever side. And, you know, her story is a story of not knowing, not even knowing really why she was showing up there at first, bearing witness and then offering compassion. And when we're willing to bear witness, we gain empathy and compassion, empowerment and facing the truth. And there's, you know, some small breaking down of our sense of separateness. And when we turn away because it's too overwhelming, and sometimes we do, sometimes that's just the best we can do. Um, because it's too overwhelming or depressing or upsetting, there is, for me, this feeling of being cut off, being separate. We benefit others by bearing witness as they see they're not alone, and we benefit ourselves, and then we benefit anyone, like with this story, you know? I feel like this story goes on benefiting, recalling, perceiving the world as a more helpful place. And just as our unknown stone catcher bodhisattva, that's what I call her, because she doesn't have a name, um, acknowledges, she says, yes, it hurts. But then it's the next moment and we don't carry stones around in our backpack. We don't carry our narratives our angst, our judgments, just keep putting them down. Sometimes we offer compassion, sometimes we receive it, and feel the humanity and the interdependence and the one body. So this is our practice, this willingness to share whatever good we have. It's enough. And this is what Joan Sutherland teaches us as well, just Whatever good we have in a moment, it's enough. She says, um, and you'll remember this, uh, if you've been looking, reading her commentary, 
we can ask ourselves, which of the many possible bodhisattvas are you in this situation? Which of many possible bodhisattvas are you reaching your hand out to? Right? Fingers crossed, bodhisattva, pretty close, bodhisattva. Sleepy by 7 uh, p.m., bodhisattva. <laughs> and we give our best. And she says, you give your best and remember that everything in the world is engaged in the work of waking up. One other thing in this lovely story in the Brian Stevenson book, um, right at the end of their encounter, he says, he compliments her, you know, telling her, you're so good at what you do after she's comforted him and held him. And she says, I just do what I do, nothing more. I just do what I do. There's another uh, teaching that's part of this that Joan Sutherland brings forth, that we're not the manufacturers of our, our compassion. She says, the good in us belongs not to ourselves, but to the world. And this is her poetry. This just goes right to my heart. Then she says, it's a migratory, migratory bird, this compassion, that for a moment has come to rest in us, which we shelter and feed and send on its way. The good in us belongs not to ourselves, but to the world. It's a migratory bird, migratory bird, that for a moment has come to rest in us, which we shelter and feed and send on its way. And I think, uh, One of the, we just had our Fusatsu ceremony, our full moon ceremony, and one of, in one of the um, precepts we say, I vow to use all the ingredients of my life, giving my best effort and accepting the result. And this also, you know, is kind of non-attachment, accepting the result. So we just engage. On Sunday, in our informal, lovely conversation. Um, we were just talking about, we, we kind of went off, wouldn't call it a tangent, but we were talking about the news and our engagement in politics and the, the world stage and how hard it is to, to be with it. And um, Mary Knudsen sent me an email and I loved what she said. And, and I said, can I quote this? And she said, no, it's actually Joan Sutherland <laughs> from that book, but it's so um, pertinent. And I'm gonna read you what Mary said, which is a little bit different than what Joan Sutherland said. But compassion is first a vow, an intention, a commitment. It's working toward responding in ways that are helpful, regardless of how you feel, to whatever extent you can. The willingness to share whatever good you have, even without complete empathy or understanding, is full-blown compassion. Because it's the good that you have. It's as much as you can do. It's all of it. It's never too small. Never too small. 
acts of compassion are the way we enact small acts, like everyday acts, are the way we bring forth our original great vow. And it's not ours and never belonged to us. We participate, give voice. Um, And this giving voice to our vow, I think uh, is captured by these words of Joanna Macy. So listen, there's a song that wants to sing itself through us. We've just got to be available. Maybe that song that is to be sung through us is the most beautiful requiem for an irreplaceable planet. Or Maybe it's a song of joyous rebirth as we create a new culture that doesn't destroy its world. But in any case, there's absolutely no excuse for making our passionate love for the world dependent on what we think of its degree of health, whether we think it's going to go on forever. Those are just thoughts anyway, but this moment you're alive. So you can just dial up the magic of that at any time. So I'd like to stop there. And um, I know you'll have your announcements and then hopefully we'll have some time for conversation. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. <laughs>